and I hope that uh, uh, you're not expecting a Father's Day message because we don't have one. But uh, <laughs> let me say to you, Happy Father's Day. Uh, I'll leave that up to uh, I leave that up to your families to take you out and celebrate Father's Day. And uh, I hope that you have a good day. You deserve it. And uh, we appreciate you being here today. You know, we, uh, we, uh, we celebrate Father's Day and Mother's Day every day around here because when God made you a father and a mother, he made you, gave you a special job. And uh, we appreciate uh, the moms and the dads in our church and the good jobs that they do. Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, let's turn back to, uh, uh, to uh, Romans chapter 15. You know that we have been uh, coming through the book of Romans. And um, we've pretty much laid out the book of Romans in just about every aspect of it. And we're coming down to the last couple of chapters. And uh, I think probably, as far as you and I are concerned, that the two greatest chapters in Romans are, are chapter 14 and 15. When you get into chapter 16, know that there's some great information in there. Um, uh, he's basically saying goodbye and thanking people and talking to people, but uh, uh, still there's some great stuff in there that we'll need to look at. But 14 and 15, we really saw and understood uh, how our relationship should be to each other, the family of God. And last week we looked at uh, the fourth aspect. I told you that this chapter, chapter 15, is built around seven major principles. And uh, we looked at the fourth one last week, and that is uh, the aspect of receiving people. We talked about being Christ-like. That's been really the theme of chapter 15, that uh, we as Christians, what does that mean? Most people don't know that uh, the Bible says in Acts chapter 11 that they were first called Christians at Antioch. Antioch is in Syria. And Antioch is the place where really the birthplace of New Testament Christianity uh, it's where it all started. And the word Christian uh, was not a term, you know, many of the terms that we have today uh, were not popular terms or not good terms when, uh, when they were first used. Now, we're Baptists. And I know that there's a lot of goofy Baptists out there, and there really is. But you take, and I know a lot of guys, when they start churches, they don't want to call it a Baptist church because... Uh, you know, of what so many goofy Baptists uh, stand for, and they don't want to be identified with that. Uh, and so they call their church another name, uh, but then whatever name you call it, you wind up being identified with something. So uh, in our church, we're a Baptist church. And we're a Baptist church because of the fact that we know and believe what the word Baptist stood for in its beginning. The word Baptist was never used as a good term. Uh, the real term for it was Pedro Anabaptist, or sometimes you'll find it just Anabaptist. And the Anabaptist is a, is a term that was given to a people like you and me who were Bible believers down through history because they would not baptize their babies. They would not believe that salvation was found through water baptism. So the Roman Catholic Church, who was the great enemy of the Baptist, uh, called them Anabaptist. Long about 1600, someplace in there, they dropped the Anna, and uh, so we're known as Baptists. Most people don't even know that. Most people don't know the word Christian was not a good word when it started out. Uh, the word Christian uh, was given to Christianity or Christians by their enemies. And Acts chapter 11 is where you find the first record of anybody being called Christian. And it was given to us by the Roman, uh, Roman uh, government at that point because the Roman government had 
500, 600, 800 gods. They had a god for everything. Our week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, are all based on Roman gods. Our months are based on the Roman gods. Uh, so much of our culture and our society goes back to Rome and then on back to the Greeks. Well, the Romans really got it from the Greeks. But anyway, and so uh, they, they had hundreds of gods. They had a god for everything. Where Christianity only had one god, the true god of the Bible. They looked at that as kind of a poor man's religion and made fun of it. Not only that, but Christians, Christians were talking about the fact that where the Romans had their gods in temples, the Christians were talking about that their god lived inside them. And so the Romans, obviously, uh, making sport of that and making fun of that concept, uh, said, oh, so your god lives inside you, and your god is Christ? Yes. And he lives inside you? Yes. Well, I guess that makes you a little Christ. And that's where the word Christian came from. It means little Christ. Because there was a true line of believers that held to that. And uh, that's, that's where they went from there. So when we talk about being Christ-like, which is really the theme of chapter 14 and 15, it simply means what it says. It means that you and I are to be like Christ in what we think, how we deal with situations, I talk about Bible principles all the time, and I try to keep before you uh, the importance of learning Bible principles, because it's Bible principles and living them and using them in the right format that really makes you Christ-like. Christ-like is simply being like Christ in the way you think, in the way you deal with problems, in the way you deal with circumstances, and in the last message we've had coming down through here, how you receive people. And Paul made two great analogies, and we looked at them last week. He told you and me that we're to receive other people uh, based on the fact that when you and I were unlovable, when you and I were unreceivable, when you and I were everything against God that God stood for, what did God do? God received you and me. And he said, on that basis, we don't have any right not to receive somebody else. God didn't put any conditions on receiving you. He receives you on the basis of his son dying on the cross for you. And, of course, that was the point that he made last week, uh, that we are to receive people. He broadened it then. You remember that he went even farther than that, and he talked about the Gentiles, how that the Gentile nations, and by the way, uh, you and I, unless you're an Orthodox Jew here this morning, which I don't think we have any, you're a Gentile. And he goes and talks about that the Gentile nations, were totally against God. They were against everything that God wanted and did. And in spite of that, the Jews were not allowed to have anything to do with him. In fact, in Matthew chapter 10, where he sends out the 12 apostles, he clearly tells them not to go to the Gentiles, don't go to the Sumerians, that's half Jew and Gentile, but simply go to the house of Israel because the Gentiles were unclean. And yet he shows us by that great example that there came a time when Christ died on the cross, what happened? that he received the Gentiles. That which was unholy, ungodly, God now had cleansed and received them. And he sets that down that if God is willing to receive you and me before we're saved and even after we're saved with all the ungodly things we get involved in, who are we not to receive somebody else? And it's a great principle. It's a great principle of being Christ-like. Now, as you can probably see in chapter 15, and some of you are pretty, uh, pretty good with the Bible. You're getting along with it pretty well. You can probably see that chapter 15 by now follows a progression. 
and we end 14.2. We've kind of worked through a progression here. These two chapters follow the life, a life journey. And I showed you, uh, I think it was the first time we talked about chapter 14, the life of Abraham. And how that his life, like your life and my life, was a journey. But it was a journey of a progression. How he starts out not being able to trust God for anything and then winds up trusting God with, with everything. And uh, uh, it's a great asset of the Bible that you need to see. It'll really help you put it into perspective. Because God has a progression for everything he does. It's one of the amazing things of the Bible. I cannot think of one thing that God did that he did not do through some kind of progression. Now you go back in your Bible and you look at the calling out of the nation of Israel. You know what? He calls Israel out in Genesis chapter 11. I don't know if you know what time that is. That'll be 1900 B.C. And Israel doesn't get established as a nation till 1000 B.C. You know what you got there? It took God a progression of 900 years to get Israel from the place where he called them out to the place where they became uh, the nation with Jerusalem being their capital. That doesn't happen until David gets on the throne. How about Christ coming to the Jew? You know what? You go back in your Bible, you'll find prophecies on the coming of Christ that range anywhere from 600 to 1,000 years before Christ was born. You know what? It took a progression. It was a progressive thing as God moved through the Bible. We talk about the restoration of the nation of Israel, how God is going to come back and restore the nation of Israel. But you know what? Even that is a progression. Why, God, uh, God put the Jews on the back burner in Acts chapter 8, and uh, here it is, almost 2,000 years later. And God is getting ready now. You know our chart up there. God is the world events around you. God is getting ready now to restore the nation of Israel. It took 2,000 years for that progression. Everything in the Bible is a progression. You've got a Bible in front of you. And that Bible tells you and I what we're supposed to do in life and gives us everything that God wants us to know. But I think people think sometimes that the, the Bible just parachuted down from heaven, uh, from God, and somebody found it and started printing it off. No, not at all. You realize that even getting your Bible took a progression? No, no. When you look at that thing and you find that when Christ shows up and he begins to do his work, uh, and the books began to be written by the men who wrote them, there's a process, a progression of 60-some years to get that Bible complete. Not only that, it took another 1,600 years to get that Bible in its final form. Everything's a progression. Everything is. And uh, you know what? It's important that you understand how God works. And I'll tell you why that is. Because we get in a hurry. And that's nothing wrong with getting in a hurry. I'd rather see you be in a hurry than to be lackadaisical and not care. But the truth of the matter is, I like your hurriedness. I love, where's Kevin at? Where's my buddy Kevin? Uh, I, I love you, Kevin. I got to tell this story. Please don't be upset with me. I don't care if you are. I do. <laughs> we had our men's meeting yesterday, you know, and Kevin's come to that. And Kevin, how long have you been saved now? Well, four months. Kevin's doing a good job. And uh, Zach brought him and he got saved. And we had our men's meeting yesterday. And at the end of the men's meeting, I always have, you know, uh, the, the guys come up and to take teams. And we divide them up. Jimmy counts them and we divide them up and try to put four or five on a team. Well, well you know what? The guys came up and we, we, had, we were short. I needed three more guys. And I said, I need three more guys. And old Kevin jumped up and started to come up to the deal. And I, and, I, and I had to tell him, I said, Kevin, I said, I'm not sure you're ready to do that just yet, but I really love your spirit. You see, that's what I'm talking about. See? He wanted to get up there and do something. 
And uh, that, I like that. I like people who are, who are, or who want, or want to get ahead of the game. And I like that attitude, but the reality of it is this. You have to walk before you can run. I have no doubt in my mind, Kevin, that you'll be a champion runner for God by the time you get to the point, and it won't take you long. You've been here four months, I guarantee you. Six months from now, you'll be on fire, and uh, three months after that, you'll be a nuclear explosion. It's good. I'm happy for you. But that, that's what I look for. Because we all get in a hurry. But when it comes to God, the thing that you've got to realize is that you can't, you can't get in a hurry. Our whole world is that way. I remember when they made the first McDonald's. I remember on the sign, it wasn't 87 billion sold. It was just one. I live in Canton, Ohio, and it was up on Tusk. Yeah, up on Tusk up there was the first McDonald's. My mom and dad and I, we thought it was the greatest thing in the world to go to a McDonald's. No, but it was the first fast food restaurant you ever had. Ah, here's the word, isn't it? Fast food. See, our society was changing. Remember when we used to sit around a table and mom used to make dinner and spend hours making dinner? You know, the June Cleaver type. She wore the dress with the deal on it, you know. And uh, she made around, and we all sat around a family. I remember it in our home. I remember in our home, dad would come home from work, mom would meet, I'd be out playing. I remember that voice as clear as anything out the back door. Bobby! You know, time to eat. And it's one of those things where we sat around the table. Everybody did. I mean, you got to remember, on the TV, there wasn't any murder, there wasn't any rape, there wasn't any adultery, there wasn't any, any flesh. You know what it was? It was Ozzy and Harriet. You see? Ozzy and Harriet, uh, it was the Cleavers uh, and all that group. It was all the basic things that was very wholesome. But then society was changing, wasn't it? And so they wanted to introduce something faster. So we got fast food. And then fast food wasn't fast enough, so you had to put a drive-in through the fast food so you could get your fast food faster. <laughs> and, uh, and then that wasn't enough. Somebody said, well, we have fast food, we have fast food faster, but people are now are really different, and they don't want the standard. So you could, the restaurant started saying, you can have it your way. And then right after that, churches started picking up on that concept. So you can just about go wherever you want to go. I mean, it's a society is geared that way. And that's part of our problem. I remember when, I remember when, when we went to school that the, the thing that we all hated was new blue jeans. Because they were real stiff, they were real starchy, and they were real hard to wear and scratchy. And everybody liked that lived-in look. But it took about, what, six months of washing? You don't have to do that anymore. Now you can buy blue jeans. They've got holes in them wherever you want them. They already wore out for you. Somewhere on this planet, I want you to know that for you people who pay $80 for throwaway jeans. Somewhere on this planet, I'm looking for it. Somewhere on this planet, there's a bunch of people who are making millions of dollars wearing the jeans that you have on now for six or seven months before you think they're new. I'm telling you. I look at them and I think, and I hear the joke when you wear them to church, these are my holy jeans. I really don't care. I think they're kind of neat. I got a, I got a couple pair myself. I mean, you know what? I mean, this is a good... But you know, you never notice charismatics don't ever wear them because the holes keep healing up. <laughs> I, 
if you're charismatic, that's not a slam. That's just a joke, and I didn't really have it. I just thought about it as it came through here, so I just thought I'd do it. Anyway, bottom line is this. You know what? We, we get in a hurry. And when it comes to God, you can't get in a hurry. Growth is a process. The church was the same way. It took some, really, if you want to go back and, and dissect the book of Acts, it probably took 20 or 30 years to fully, for God to fully lay out the concept of the church. People don't really understand that when they read the book of Acts, but it did. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 12 are some great verses, and it says, And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Did you ever analyze verse 11? Did you ever look at that? It says, And he gave some apostles. There's your first group. You know what the Bible says in Ephesians 2.20? It tells you that the church is built on the foundations of the apostles. You know the next group you find? It says prophets. You know where you find those? Acts chapter 11, verse 27. Then it says evangelists. That would be Philip and Paul. And then it says pastors and teachers. That'd be Timothy, Titus, Philemon, and Priscilla and Aquila, and the rest of the guys who are pastor. And of course, Aquila's is, uh, Priscilla's his wife, but there's a team. And that's how it went. It was a progression. And your life and my life has to be the same way. Verse 12 says, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. You see, perfecting of the saints. What does that mean? Well, when you come to church here, the progression starts. You decide that this church is for you and you want to learn the Bible. You want to be a better husband, a better wife, a better mother, a better father. You want to uh, have a better handle on life. You want to just have a better relationship with God. Then there's a process that starts. The first thing is perfecting of the saints. What does that mean? It means basically <coughs> getting out of your life the things that you got to get out so you can begin to build a relationship with God. Then the second thing says in verse 12, it says, for the work of the ministry. What does that mean? It means that as you perfect yourself, the perfecting yourself is for the work of the ministry. You begin to understand that God saved you for a purpose. God saved you for a reason. And then the third aspect of it is, and this is where we're at right now, isn't it? For the edifying of the body of Christ. You see, there's a progression. You start by getting your life squared away. You next move into understanding the work of the ministry, what it's all about, why God even saved you to begin with. And then you, the third step is edifying somebody else, receiving them. That's what we're talking about. That's what we're talking about. And, of course, that's the key to the whole thing, isn't it? Now, that's the way God does things. So, I, I, you know, I love your enthusiasm. I really do. And I want to see you just ripping at the gate to get out. But the bottom line is, whatever you do in life for God... Don't get in a hurry. I mean, the world gets us in a hurry. Now, everything around us, we want it now. I think my mom and dad probably waited for about 10 or 15 years after they were married before they bought their first house. Today, we don't do those things. Now, we have ways to get it right now, even when we can't afford it. In fact, that's part of the problem. It's got our country financially in the mess that it's in. You know, people bought the loan, took the houses, got the loans, never read the fine print, and then come to the place where they can't pay for them. All because we get in a hurry. Now, yesterday, we, with the guys, we had a great time. And uh, we really, I feel, got some things accomplished in our beginning of laying this thing out. But what you saw yesterday is exactly what I'm talking about. And I explained to you yesterday, as we explained uh, uh, over the last couple of times, that when you come to Saturday morning and you want to get involved in this church and get involved in one of the prayer groups and really figure out what's going on, we kind of score it out in, 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 uh, in, in three levels. 
Level one would be the basic entry where you, where you, Bible talks about here, where you would uh, uh, perfect yourself. Level two would be understanding the ministry, and level three is the edification of other people, understanding how that works. And I told you yesterday that my goal is to get an ongoing process throughout this church that never ends, that level ones don't stay level ones, they become level twos. And level twos don't stay level twos, they become level threes. That the process of spiritual growth works in your life. Now, I know that everybody grows differently. I don't hold the same standard for one person as I hold for another. What I want to see is progress, not retrograde, but progress in the aspect of spiritual growth. That's the key. Now, look at Ephesians chapter 4 here for a second. I know I put you to Romans 15, but we'll be there in a minute. I'm sorry. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. Now, this is what the process does. Look at verse 13. Till we all come in the unity of the faith, out of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men, and cunning craftiness, whereby they lay in wait, lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. Now, let's look at that verse, because this is, this is the progression here. Look at verse 13. The goal ought to be the unity of the faith. It comes till we come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. What does that mean? That means the knowledge of understanding who God is, like we saw in Colossians last week. Verse 13 says, unto a perfect man. And, of course, we uh, become a perfect man, not in sinlessness, but in perfecting ourselves for the ministry because Christ is our perfect model. We saw that last week, didn't we? Verse 14. It says, verse 14, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, uh, carried about by every wind of doctrine. Now, that's the problem that we all have to solve in our lives. Growing up, understanding what the Bible says. Knowing not only what you believe, but why you believe it. Coming to the point in your life where you're not tossed to and fro. You go to work and somebody hears something or somebody says, Wow, did you see this on the internet? Or did you hear? And you get confused because you don't really know what you believe, what you believe, so you're susceptible to what anybody else believes. And the Bible says God doesn't want you that way, He wants you to grow up. He wants you to be no more children in a spiritual sense. He doesn't want you to be tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine. I found out that probably, and this is a sad thing, but it's probably true. I, I know it to be true. I could probably take the average Christian that you find today. And I'm not talking about a new Christian. I'm talking about a Christian that's been saved 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years. I could probably take, and some of you could do this too, it just isn't because it's me, but we could probably take somebody that's been saved a long time and, and have them so confused in a conversation of 20, 30 minutes that they wouldn't even know if they really were saved or not. And you know why that is? And that's a sad thing, but you know why that is? It's because they never learned really what happened to them the day they got saved. They, they, they probably are saved, but they went to churches all of their life, and they never really found out not only what they believe, but never found out why they believe what they believe. So they're what they are. They're tossed to and fro. Every wind, 
of doctrine. Remember when the Holy Spirit of God came in Acts chapter 1 and 2, it came as a mighty rushing what? Wind. That's a false doctrine. That's a false Holy Spirit. And the problem with most of God's people, they can't tell the difference between the real thing or the, or the wrong thing. And of course, he goes on and he says, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness. Then he says in verse 15, speaking the truth in love. See, we talked about that yesterday. We talked about how hard it is for so many young men uh, who are coming into ministry to make the hard decisions. In the ministry, dealing with people, you're not going to make everybody happy. And you're going to have to make some decisions that people aren't going to like. You've got to make some decisions that, that, uh, that people are, are not going to be happy with. But the bottom line is, you've got to be able to speak the truth in love, lay it on the table, put it out in the Bible. That's where it's at, and that's where it stands. And that doesn't mean you do it in a mean way. It doesn't mean that you do it in a bad way. It just means that you have to do it. And then he says, verse 15, but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things. Now, I think that's a great verse because it doesn't say grow up unto him. It says grow up into him. You know, you know what that means? That means Christ-like. In other words, your life ought to be a progression that you become just like Christ more every day. And one of these days, because that progression is in your life, you wake up, you see things the way Christ sees them, you look at things the way Christ looks at them, you understand them the way the Bible lays them out, and you use the Bible principles in everything. And look what it says. That you may, and this is another great one. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things. I think that's a good one. Not the things you want to grow up into. It doesn't say the things you like. It doesn't say the things you prefer. It doesn't say the things that uh, you're okay with versus the things you're not okay with. It says, grow up unto him in all things. That's Christ-like. That's being like Christ. And that's what that great concept is. Now, Romans chapter 15 shows us a great truth. We can turn back there now uh, about our relationship with God. And uh, it's, a, it's a progression of God uh, showing and teaching us. And uh, it's a great concept, it's, uh, it is this, that when you get saved, life is not over. When you get saved, your sins may be past now, and when you get saved, uh, you, 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 your old life may be gone, but it doesn't mean that it's over, it simply means that God has given you a new life, and now it all begins for God. Where the last part of your life was all about you, now the rest of your life needs to be all about Him. And that's the way it needs to work. Old things are passed away and all things become new. Now, um, I, I told you go to Romans 15. Uh, come back to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. <laughs> this is a test. I'm seeing how well you're, you can find your books in your Bible. I promise you we're going to get to Romans 15. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. Now, when I talk about a progression, here's a good example of that. Look at verse 5. And besides this, giving all diligence, watch this, add to your faith. All right, you see that? Then once you get saved, there's some things that you need to add to your faith. You know what that is? That's a progression. In other words, when you got saved, God just didn't want you to stay where you're at. He wants you to add some things. It's part of that progression. It's part of the progression of growing up into him, being Christ-like. 
And these are all character qualities of Christ. We don't have time to go through them all this morning, but the first one is virtue. It says down there, and uh, add to your faith, virtue, and to virtue, knowledge, and to knowledge, temperance, and to temperance, patience, and to patience, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and brotherly kindness, charity. Now look at verse 8. If these things be in you, see, they're not things that you do, they're things that are in you. Because you're growing up not unto him, but you're growing up into him. So when you're growing up into him, then these things are in you. I think that's probably the problem with most of God's people. Most people, God's people aren't growing up into him, they're growing up unto him. And these things aren't in them, they're things that they do when they're convenient to do, and then when they're not convenient, then they don't do them. And uh, he says, for if these things be in you, ah, I love this word, and abound, abound. They make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off, ah, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. There it is. We talked about that last week. It's the reason why we don't forgive. It's the reason why we don't receive. It's the reason why we don't become Christ-like in some situations. We like to pick and choose which one we are. The Bible says we grow up into him in all things, not the things we want to do. And, of course, the reason why we don't is we forget. We become self-righteous. We talked about it last week. We become uh, sanctimonious. We become prideful. Or we forget the fact that we have made terrible mistakes in our life and God dealt with us. But you know what? We hold grudges against other people uh, and it, it becomes an issue that, uh, uh, that, uh, that just becomes a problem. And that's what he's talking about here. So he says virtue. He says knowledge. Knowledge in the sense of Ephesians chapter 4 verse 13, knowledge about Christ. He says temperance. Temperance is balance in your life. He says patience. We know what that is. Uh, godliness, we know what that is. Kindness, we know what that is. But look at the last one. The last one is charity. Do you ever notice that charity is the last thing mentioned in this little list of things? Because this list is a progression. This is the progressive list that you will build in your life as you walk through the progression of building a relationship to become like Christ. You know why charity is the last thing? Because charity is the key to everything in God and Christ. That's why. You know what the Bible says over there in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5? It says, now the end of the commandment is charity. Out of a pure heart and out of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. Now what does feign mean? Feign means you fake something. Feign means that you fake something. You feign to be something you're not. It means fake. It means to portray one thing when you're really something else. And the thing that marks a true Christ-like Christian is the thing that it was the end of everything in Christ's life, and it's the word charity. You know why that is? Because charity, uh, and charity is a word today that has lost its biblical meaning. When we think of charity, we think of Big Brothers Association. Hey, we're going to be in the neighborhood next week. Do you have any old clothes for us? We think charity is going down the city in mission tonight. And it is. It is. But that's such a, we've lost the biblical concept of the word charity. Charity is the fact that in everything that you and I do, forgiving people, receiving people, ministering to people, whatever it is, it's done with a heart of charity. Because charity always carries with it the designation that it's unconditional. You give charity, there's nothing you want back. 
And that's the mark of Jesus Christ. That is the greatest mark of his character in his life, that he did what he did without any strings attached. He never had an ulterior motive like we do. He never did something wanting to something back. Uh, He always did it because of the fact that it was the right thing to do. And that's why in this list of things, it comes to the point where the last thing is charity. The place in your life when everything is done unconditionally. Your forgiveness, your love, your receiving people, it becomes unconditional through the concept of charity, just like Christ did with you and me. That's Christ-like. Now, that's a progression we need to have in our lives. That ought to be your goal. Ah, finally, Romans chapter 15. See how this all meshes together here. Up oh, before you go there, 1 John chapter, no, I'm just kidding you. <laughs> Romans 15. Finally, finally. Now, in light of what we've just said, let's look at Romans chapter 15, verses 13 through 18. And now today we're going to look at the fifth area of these seven concepts that he talks about. And we'll see how all this stuff meshes together. Now, verse 13. Now, the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. And I myself also am persuaded of you, my brethren, that ye are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, able also to admonish one another. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written the more boldly unto you, in some sort, as putting you in mind because of the grace that is given to me of God, that I should be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering up of the Gentiles might be acceptable, being sanctified by the Holy Ghost. For I have therefore whereof I may glory through Jesus Christ and and those things which pertain to God. For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ hath not wrought by me uh, to make the Gentiles obedient by word and deed. Now, Father, we do thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. And we ask you today to take our passage in light of what we've looked at already and laid a good foundation here. Help us in these last few moments remaining to, to look at this and to uh, understand it in the light of, of the Word of God in our lives. Help us to be Christ-like. Help us not to be selective in who we receive. Help us not to be selective in the things that we do, but like Christ, with charity, receive and do all of the things unconditionally that God has done for us. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, I've got I to gotta deviate from my message here for a moment of wanting to deal with this thing about admonishment because, you know, my goal is to help you see the Bible. And there's something here that you need to see. And this really doesn't have anything to do with our stuff, but it's really important in you putting your Bible together. And I would be, commit a crime this morning if I didn't deal with this. And the thing I want you to look at, first of all, we'll do this very quickly, is look at verse 15 and 16. What I'm about to show you is really key in putting your Bible together. Now, I know around here, you know, we we put a lot of emphasis on that. Everything that we do around here is to help you put the Bible together. When you come to this church, we just take for granted you want to become everything God wants you to be. And so I teach along those lines. And I don't want to ever miss an opportunity to give you, especially some of you first and second level people, uh, the benefit of, of understanding a great key to your Bible. And you want to remember what I'm about to show you today because really if you're a first or second level, uh, everything else I say today as far as putting your Bible together, this is what you want to remember today. Now, first of all, verse 15 and 16 clearly says that Paul 
was the apostle to the Gentiles. That's, that's absolutely paramount when it comes to understanding your Bible. And historically, um, you're going to find coming down through history, and we talked about this when we started our, our sermon this morning about Christians and Baptists, uh, you're going to find that historically the real true church has always followed a biblical line. Now, let me just tell you that the real true church was not always called a Baptist church. We know that. I'm not say, suggesting that at all. But uh, uh, you have to see uh, a great concept here uh, that the way this thing breaks down. Now, you're, everything in the Bible, we're going to go through this on Thursday night uh, when we start to show you, but every, everything in your Bible has a natural breakdown. Every book of the Bible has a natural breakdown. The verses in the grammar that it's put together with has a natural breakdown. They're called commas and semicolons and colons and periods and the paragraph marks. Everything has its breakdown. But the New Testament is by design, the way God set it up, has its own breakdown that you have to follow. And it's very important that you understand that. Because in time, most of you are going to get the Bible down, and it's things like this that's going to help you. So i got to take a moment and lay this thing out to you. Now, when you look at your New Testament, you're going to find that you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the book of Acts. Those are your first five books of the Bible. We're going to keep it very simple. Those five books of the Bible basically are your historical books or your books on history. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John talks about the first coming of Christ. Acts talks about the transition from the nation of Israel into the church, and you start to see the thing work. And, of course, the predominant person in Acts after Acts 7, as you know who it is, Peter. Peter dies at the end of the book of Acts, and then the church age begins to move on from there. So those books are basically historical books. I'm not saying that you can't find great principles and great verses out of there that you can apply to your life. You really can't. But basically, for the most part, it's a historical story and account of what God is doing. It's very important to understand that in putting your Bible together. And then we have another section that is after Paul's section, because I'm going to come back and focus on Paul's section. This section is called the, the, uh, the, the uh, general epistles. If you have a Bible, it'll say when you get to, uh, when you get to James and you get to Hebrews and you get to uh, uh, these places that are not written by Paul, right across the top of your Bible, it'll say the general epistle. And they're in a general sense. And they have a place in your Bible. And then you have the, the next section would be the book of Revelation itself. The book of Revelation stands by itself. And the book of Revelation is kind of like the capstone of the Bible. It goes back and puts everything in perspective and then shows you how the whole thing ends. But that brings us to the, the other section that what we call the Pauline epistles. And the Pauline epistles are very important in your Bible. Because where the other sections of the Bible, you might, you might be dealing with history. It might be dealing with the nation of Israel. And you have to be somewhat careful where you, what you apply uh, to yourself because it may be not written directly to you, even though it has some great stuff for you. When you come to Paul's writings, you're 100% safe. Paul's writing, everything he writes, he writes to, he writes to the church. Everything he puts in there, he puts in there directly to you for to help you. He writes in two formats. Did you ever see it? Some of his books are written to churches. That would be Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. That would be uh, uh, the Galatians, Ephesians. They're written to churches. 
Ah, but then he has a section of books that are written to individuals. He has First and Second Timothy. He has Titus. He has Philemon. Those are written to New Testament Christians. So his books are absolutely imperative that you see that the basis of what you and I teach, the basis of what you and I believe, come from the Pauline epistles. And that is absolutely important. I'm not saying that it's all not important. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm saying, but in that Bible, there's a section of books that are written to you that everything he writes is straight into your heart. In some of the books, he may be writing to you around the Jew and going through the nation of Israel or talking about this and making a point here that isn't directly to you, but you can apply it. But when you get into these books, everything there is for you. Now, I'm going to make a statement here. I'm basically to ask you a question. And at first, it's going to sound like an arrogant statement. It's not really, not meant to be. But you know why I'll never teach the Bible wrong? That sounds like an arrogant statement. Now, I have the ability to be a sinner just like everybody else. And I am a lot of the time. But I'll guarantee you, and I'm not saying I'm not above, you know, going off the deep end and uh, getting a robe and a pair of little finger symbols and heading out to the airport. But do you know why I'll never teach the Bible wrong in what we believe? There's all kinds of weird stuff out there. I had a guy call me last week that's looking uh, to come, maybe come to our church. And he's going to a church out in uh, Peculiar. And that's a good place for this church because this church is very peculiar. (laughs) We're an independent because we're an independent Baptist church. I don't know what they have in a place called Hell, Michigan. What do you think would be up there? You know, there's a place called Hell, Michigan. I don't know what kind of church that would be. But anyway, bottom line is this. This guy calls me on the phone. Nice kid. In fact, he was at our Memorial Day picnic. Really nice kid. And uh, he, he calls me on the phone and he says, hey, he says, Bobby says, uh, I'm really struggling with some stuff here. And he says, I'm going to a church and he says, uh, this church has been here now about, about nine years. And he says, it's, it's only running about three couples. And he says, people come, but people won't stay. And he says, I'm not getting fed spiritually. And he says, he says I feel a loyalty to the pastor. But he says, he says what, do you think, what do you think could be wrong that a church like this is not growing? And I, you know, and I'm wanted to be very kind. I, I wasn't gonna. I mean, I know the kid that's pastor in the church, and I wasn't gonna say anything negative. I mean, that's not my deal. So I tried to talk with him. I said, "Well, you know what? Sometimes guys just don't know how to pastor. I mean, maybe he just doesn't understand how to get the thing going." And we talked for a little bit, and then he said this. He says, "Well, I'm glad we're talking." He said, "Let me ask you this." He says, "Because he teaches this," and he says, "I want to know what your opinion is on this." He says he teaches from the pulpit that if you have kids, how many of you have kids under the age of accountability or not, or not, haven't been shaved yet? Oh, we got more than that. I mean, we got Noah's Ark in there and everything. There. Where are you all at? Are you ashamed of them? You see all the kids up here today? Well, here was the taught. He's teaching that if you have kids under the age of accountability and the rapture of the church comes, that your kids do not go and they have to stay and go through the tribulation period. Why are some of you smiling that have kids? 
I said when he said that, I said, whoa, you just told me why nobody wants to come to that church. You just answered your own question. What young couple is going to go to the church with a pastor teaches from the pulpit that if the rapture comes and your kids are little kids under the age of accountability, Maddie, Maddie, Macy, and Kenzie, that they're going to stand go through the tribulation prayer and you go to heaven. Is there any parent that's going to be happy about that? Is there any parent that's going to say, wow, <laughs> I'm going to join this church? I was talking to Bob about it, Bob Gregg, when the night it happened, and I, I, I told Bob, and we agreed, and all the years of the weird stuff I've heard people teach, I've never heard that taught anywhere. That is a new one for me. I can't even imagine. I would even, if I believed that, I wouldn't tell you. I just wait we all get to heaven. See? Let, let the Lord deal with it. <laughs> I ain't telling you that. <laughs> you look at me and say, where's the kids? And I'll say, I talk to him. <laughs> I wouldn't even tell you that. Woo, that's rough. No, I don't even know where you get that from. I mean, I know, I, I can't even remotely think in the Bible where you'd find that. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I shake it upside. I don't know where it's at in there. You got all kinds of weird stuff. You got people that, you got people that, that teach baptism for salvation. You got people that teach the church is going through the tribulation period. You got people teaching that the Jews over in Israel right now are not the real Jews. That they're over here and in in you and me hidden in the Gentiles. They call that Armstrongism like 30, 40 years ago. Now I'm going to tell you something. You know why that I'll, if I stay on course, that I'll never teach you heresy or don't, won't have the ability to teach you heresy? I'm going to tell you why. It's not an arrogant statement. It's a true statement. You know why? Because whatever I teach you, Whatever I teach you, and when I give you, you can trace back to 1,900 years of the true church believing it. You think I just make all this stuff up? Hey, I was taught by the boys that were taught by the boys that were taught by the boys, and that thing runs back in a true line all the way back. Everything I teach you can be substantiated in history. This is the importance of church history. You're learning that on Tuesday night. Everything I teach you isn't Bob Alexander's pet theory. It isn't this or it's that. It can be substantiated that the church, the true church of Jesus Christ, believe these doctrines all the way back through the Bible. So when I hear somebody get up and talk about Calvinism, I know he's a bird brain. Calvinism didn't start till 1500 with Calvin. 1500 years after Christ died. Nobody believed that. No, 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 no. What you got to believe about the Bible needs to have a pedigree, a paper trail all the way back to where it first started. It's just that simple. Now, I just told you, I just told you that, that we put the emphasis in our preaching on the Pauline writings. He wrote to the church back around 500 or 600. You had a group. They were called heretics. You know why they were called heretics? They called them Polyseans. You know why they were called Polyseans and, and labeled heretics by the Roman Catholic Church? You know why they were called Polyseans? Because they were a group of people who rejected the Catholic Church teaching that Peter was the Pope and realized that they needed to put what they really believed in the Pauline epistles because that's where the bedrock of church faith was, so they called them Polyseans. See? I mean, you think I just stay up late at night and get my hair all, well, never mind, get my hair all like a crazy scientist. I don't have any hair. 
But you get up in the middle of the night and think, hey, this stuff has to go back. It has to be documented. And that's the difference of knowing why you believe what you believe. And that's why as long as you stick with that, you'll never teach the Bible wrong. You hear me talk about the fact that, and this is probably over some of your heads, but we talk about the gap between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. And in theological circuits, it's called the gap theory. Ain't no theory to it. It's the gap fact. Somebody sent me a paper here a while back of some dingbat pastor that tried to refute the thing, and his, his argument was absolutely ludicrous. But I didn't have to read it because you know what? 150 A.D., 150 years after Christ's death, 150 A.D., there was a group called the Manichians who were persecuted by the Roman Catholic Church. Why? Because they believed there was a gap between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. I mean, what I believe goes back. I'm sorry if you don't know that. I don't know where you wasted most of your life to figure these things out. But I'm telling you, you have to not only know what you believe, but have to know why you believe it. And that's a problem today. And it starts with understanding how these things figure the thing out. I mean, it's, it's just that simple. Somebody says, why does your church use the King James Bible? Because that was the only Bible the true church yours for 1,900 years. That's why. I mean, people don't understand. I'm not mad at them because they don't understand. But don't get mad at me because I know where it comes from and I know what I'm supposed to believe. I just teach it to you. And I hope someday when I'm dead and gone, you'll teach it to somebody else. Because the guy that taught me and taught him, and somebody taught him, and that's the process. In other words, I believe and teach not what Bob Alexander wants to believe and teach. I believe it because it goes back and can be a proven fact in 1,900 years, all the way back to Acts chapter 11 in the first century, where they're first called Christians. See, part of this process is knowing, like I said, not only why, but what you believe. That's why the Bible says you're to grow up to be no more children. It's you don't get tossed to and fro. Instead of you getting tossed to and fro, when somebody teaches you some bad doctrine, you got to take them by the scruff of the neck and toss them to and fro. In, in Jesus' name, in love. <laughs> Carried about by every wind of doctrine. Hey, I don't care where you're at today. You may have walked into this church for the first time. You may be coming a couple of weeks, a couple of months. And you may say in your heart, I want to learn the Bible. Hey, whenever you're ready to clear off a spot and say, I am done with this stuff. I am going to get it the way God wants me to have it and learn it. God's ready to do business with you. Just that simple. But it's very important that you understand why Paul's books are so crucial. I mean, you've seen that, I hope, in the book of Romans. Now, once we got that settled out of the way, let's go back and look at verse 14 and look at this, what he says here. Let's look at 14 again. And I, and I myself also am persuaded of you, my brethren, that ye also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able to admonish one another. Now, there's three things here. Do you see them? Let's talk about these three things for a little bit. The first thing he says is, full of goodness. Now, let me define that for you in the Bible. And I'm sure most of you don't know this. 
goodness in the Bible will always be a reference to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the only goodness there is. Uh, we used to hear your old grandma and your mom talk about it when they say, my goodness. You want to translate that? That would be my Jesus. Somebody says, goodness gracious. Let me translate that for you. God's grace. See how it works? Now, the definitive passages on those will be Psalms 27, 13, Psalms 33, 5, and Psalms 31, 19. And those will be the passages in the book of Psalms that will define for you that goodness is Jesus Christ. So, Jesus Christ is God's goodness. So, when the Bible says that we're supposed to be full of goodness, that simply means that we're supposed to be, <laughs> here it comes again, Christ-like. Full of Christ. There is no goodness outside of Jesus Christ. You might be a good person. That's good. But at the judgment seat, at the great white throne judgment, if you're unsaved and you're just a good person, you know what they're going to do? God's going to take you and put you in this hand, and Jesus Christ in this hand is going to weigh out your goodness versus his goodness. And you're going to find out that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, no matter how good you are. You see, I may be a good guy before I was saved, you may a good guy before you were saved, but the Bible says that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags in the sight of God. The thing that you needed and I needed, and I got and most of you got, was the fact that you got rid of your goodness and you got God's goodness, and that's Jesus Christ. Now, the Bible says that you're to be full of that goodness. All right, look at the next thing. Filled with all knowledge. Now, that's knowledge in particular there. That's not knowledge in a broad sense. That's knowledge of the way we've looked at it in Colossians chapter 1 last week and in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 13 and just a few moments ago. That's filled with all knowledge, knowledge of Jesus Christ, who he is. And of course, you can't be like him till you know who he is. And then the third thing, and this will be the fifth one we're going to talk about. This will be our, really our, our goal today. All, able also to admonish one another. And this is the concept that I want to take a few moments and talk to you about. In the Bible, the word admonish carries a number of different meanings to it. And most of them are defined by the verses you find them in. We don't have time to go through all of them, but I've got a couple of them here for you. But basically, when you go through the Bible, you're going to find that the word admonish, uh, it's, not a, it's, not, it's never a hard rebuke. Admonish is something that we need to do to each other, but it has various forms and various forms that we need to apply. First of all, it deals with, in a sense of mildly uh, reproving somebody. Not harshly, but mildly reproving somebody. It's used in a connotation of giving somebody advice, good advice, biblical advice. It's used in a context of, of warning people. It's used in a context of instructing people. It's used in a context of counsel you give to people. It's used in a context of directing people. And it's given in a context of giving instructions in, in duty to people. And great example of this, and most of you already know this because we've talked about it many, many times, but I, personally for me, I think it's one of the greatest concepts in the Bible about the Bible for you and for me. The greatest example of this is the Bible itself and the Bible claiming for what it does for us. Over in, you don't have to turn to it. Over in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, here's the greatest example I know of what the Bible does in the form of admonishment. And you find all of the forms here. 
This is the only two verses I know that, that really define it and define it in its entirety of all of its concepts. I mean, you'll find different verses where it uses the word admonish and it'll be a different thing, but this is the only verse that I know that covers the whole realm and the whole spectrum of it. And it's a very familiar verse. It simply says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. And then it lists four things that it's profitable for. The first thing is for doctrine. The second thing is for reproof. The third thing is for correction. And the fourth thing is for instruction in righteousness. Then in verse 17 it says this. After he says what it's for, it tells you what it accomplishes. It says in verse 17 that the man of God may be perfect. Now, that's not sinless perfection. It says that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. It doesn't say that the Bible makes you perfect. But it does say that the Bible perfects you for all the good works that God wants you. Remember the thing back there in Ephesians for the work of the ministry? Now, let me show you the four things the Bible does. And here lies the biblical definition of the word admonish or admonishment. The first thing it says, now the Bible has a profit, something that's profitable for you. And the first thing it says there that it's profitable for is for doctrine. Now that's very important because the Bible, the Bible is a book that shows you what's right. And it's very important. I try to tell you all the time, the Bible is the only standard that you have that you can trust. Your teacher may say that was the right thing to do. Your mom and dad may say you did the right thing. But at the end of the day, and I'm not taking that away from them, but the bottom line, the only book that really defines what right is, is the Bible. And uh, I mean, I've, I mean, uh, I mean, I mean, Joe Ligursky, who was a great gangster one time, um, you know, who had a buddy who killed somebody that was his enemy, went over to him and said, uh, you know, uh, boy, I tell you what, you, uh, you did the right thing because he was giving us problems. See, that's the wrong kind of right. But everybody's got their own definition of right. The Bible gives you God's definition of right. It is called doctrine. Doctrine shows you what's right. Then the second thing he talks about there is reproof. You see, once the Bible shows you what's right, then the Bible always contrasts itself by showing you what's wrong. Don't you do that with your kids? Don't you teach your kids the concept of what? Right and what? Wrong. Well, if you know how to do that, how much more can God not be able to do that? So God takes the Bible, and by the Bible, he teaches us what is right, and then he reproves and he shows what's wrong. So the Bible shows us what's right. The Bible shows us what's wrong. Then the third thing is correction. See, the Bible goes farther than just telling you what's right and what's wrong, because in the concept of correction, the Bible shows you how to fix what's wrong. That's the whole key of the Bible. That's what Sunday morning preaching is about. That's what reading your Bible is about. The Holy Spirit of God shows you through conviction of the Holy Spirit of God what's right in the Bible and what's wrong in our lives. And then he leads us to the way that we can correct it. See that thing? I mean, that's really all that it really is. And then the fourth thing is an incredible thing too. It says instruction in righteousness. You see, the Bible shows you what's right. The Bible shows you what's wrong. The Bible shows you how to fix it. And then you know what it does? It shows you how to keep it fixed. Instructions in righteousness. Now that's the Bible term or definition of admonishment. Or to admonish. The Bible admonishes you with what's right. It instructs you. It, it gives you everything you need. The Bible admonishes you into what's wrong. The Bible admonishes you how to fix what's wrong. And then it admonishes you how to keep it fixed. 
That's what the Bible does. Now, we're also told in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, and this is another great one, uh, that the, and this opens up the whole Old Testament to us, that the things in the Old Testament, they happen for a reason, the Bible says. In other words, the story in the Bible in the Old Testament, Adam and Eve, Noah and the ark, Cain and Abel, you know, Abraham and Isaac, Jacob and Esau, all of the story, David and Goliath, you know, Saul and the witch at Endor, all of those stories, the Bible says that therefore are examples. And then it goes on to say that they are written, they're written in the Bible for our admonition. Now, what does that mean? That means you read those stories in the Bible and you see how people got caught up in sin. You'll take a guy like Samson, you'll take a guy like Saul, you'll take a guy like Abraham, you take a guy like Job, you take a guy like Moses, you take a guy like Ahab, you take a lady like Jezebel, she wasn't no lady, take Jezebel, and you'll find out everything about them in light of what they did wrong, what they did right, and you learn, and you get admonished by that. I mean, those things will warn you, they'll advise you, they'll instruct you, they'll, they'll, they'll uh, direct you, they'll, they'll do everything that they need to do. All right, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Here's a good one. This is a good one for you parents. And ye fathers, today's Father's Day. Okay, good. Here's the verse. I knew we'd get Father's Day in here someplace. <laughs> Ephesians 6, 4. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the, ah, admonition of the Lord. Boy, that's a good verse. You know, most fathers... Sadly to say, most fathers provoke their children. I, I deal with it all the time, you know, where you get, and I, and I, 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 I caution people on this, that, you know, you, you grow up and maybe you have a, you know, you have a bad marriage and you get a divorce and uh, maybe you have two kids and uh, you marry somebody else and he's got two kids or one kid and it, it's always a problem. Paul tells you in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that if you follow yourself in that category, that you're going to have problems in the flesh. Because I found this to be true, and it happens. It's just the way it is. It doesn't mean you can't fix it. It just means you've got to be aware of it. I've seen in every situation where, where uh, you know, uh, the dad marries the woman, but he doesn't, in his mind, isn't marrying the kids. They're the tag-along. They're the baggage. And, you know, she marries the guy because she loves the guy, but you know what? And she may have an easier time accepting the kids than guys do. It's vice versa. But they don't understand the concept that when you're marrying a person, you're taking with them whatever comes in, whatever kids they have. And, of course, that causes problems. Because if you don't have an understanding of how to admonish them and bring them up in the Lord, you know what happens? You grow up in a family where it's her kids and your kids. And the moment they sense that among you two, you know what they do? The kids ain't dumb. They'll, they, you give them a crack, they'll drive a wedge, you get an 18-wheeler through it. They'll use both ends against the middle, and they'll pitch you against each other. That's the way it works. And that's why most fathers provoke their children, and, and the problems their children have uh, growing up in their family is because of the, fa- the fact that the fathers provoke that. I don't mean, I'm not saying they get up at night and say, okay, how can I make life worse for him tomorrow? It just happens because you don't understand what it means to bring your kids up and admonish them in the Lord. And I, I had a, I had a, I, I've had, I tell this to people all the time. Last year, I had a, a couple that were not going to our church, and they come in and talk to me, and they had the same situation, and a very bad situation. And uh, to my knowledge, it never really got worked out. 
But he had married a woman, and he had a kid or two kids. I can't remember. She had a couple of kids, and, and they were married now, and they were just having hell on earth. And, uh, you know, and, uh, and his question to me was, I don't know how you deal with this because, you know what, I can't, I can't control them. I can't deal with them. I can't discipline them because I'm not their biological father. And he says, so I'm really hamstrung here. And I said, I said, no, I said, that's not really true. I said, that's not really true. I said, the first thing you need to do is understand that your job is to start with this. Realize that your job as a father, no matter whose kids or who, your job is to raise them up in the admonition of the Lord. That's your responsibility. Clear off a spot, plant the flag. And say, you know what? This house belongs to God. I know whom others may serve, but for me and my house, we serve the Lord. And you take that stand. And then you're consistent with that stand. And then you and your wife, you get a consistency together that you, 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 you look at these things and you be smarter than the kids. That's really all that it takes. It takes two parents growing up and being smarter than the problem and smarter than the kids. And I, he said, well, they're not my biological kid. You know what I said? I said, you need to come to church Sunday. He never did. I said, I want to induce you to something. I want to show you a concept. I said, I probably have in our church, right now this morning, I probably have, oh, I don't know, what, 30 or 40 guys and maybe 30 or 40 gals that uh, you've already wished me today, happy Father's Day, as your spiritual father. And um, it was a thing, I've gotten cards from from people, uh, and I'm not even your biological father. Want any money in them either, not what bothers me, if you really love me that much. And I told him this. I said, you know what? I said, I have a bunch of people in my church that I am not their biological fathers, but I have more influence in their life than their very own biological fathers. Because the key is, and you're not seeing this, the key is, it doesn't matter if you're not their biological father as long as you become their spiritual father. That's the key. That's the key. That's the key. And it's something that you, but that's what it means when it says, uh, bring up your children in the admonition of the Lord. It simply means understanding and being smarter than the problem. Because if you don't, and you just try to do it the old way, where that's your kids, and these are my kids, and they're going to fight back and forth, then, then you're going you're gonna to provoke them all the time. Uh, your job is not to provoke them. Uh, your job is to admonish them. And your situation may be, uh, you know, way extended down the line. This guy's what. But you know what? I'm going to tell you. I have never found a situation in all the years I've been in ministry. I have never found a situation that could not be handled right. The problem is that it goes so long that people don't want to handle it right. I mean, I don't know what to do you. I mean, uh, you know what? You, I've known husbands that are ruled by their wives. Their wife tell them what to do. And uh, they would love to come to this church and, come and be involved in the church. And their wife says, well, you know, that church is dumb. I ain't going. And, uh, you know, after a while, you know, he doesn't come anymore. I mean, I've seen it all the time. It happens all the time. You know, men are not in charge of their wives and uh, for whatever reason. And the bottom line is, you know, as long as that thing stays that way and you don't clear off a spot and you don't say, you know what, I am the spiritual head of this home and then be consistent with it. Now, she may laugh at you the first time you say that and say, oh, yeah, you're the spiritual head of the home. Oh, yeah. But if she sees the consistency and you keep doing what's right by the admonishment of it, it takes a lot of courage to do some things when it goes so long that it's, it's really hard. The longer, I've told you many, many times, the longer you let something go without dealing with it, the harder it becomes to deal with it. But that doesn't mean it's not right to deal with it. Now, look at the next thing. 
Here's how it's used in Colossians 3, verse 16. Ah, this is a good one. <clears throat> Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. Now there's one that, uh, about music. Music needs to admonish you. You know, I, I've, I've asked this over the years. <clears throat> Look down here, it says, verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. See that thing? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly <clears throat> in all wisdom, <clears throat> teaching and admonishing one another in Psalms. You know what the basis for music should be? It should be the word of God, the Bible doctrine in your heart. Years ago, <clears throat> they had a, we, uh, the church I was at, they were going to hire a music director. I don't know why you'd ever want to hire a music director, but we had one. <clears throat> and they brought this hotshot kid in that uh, was just a young guy. Nice kid, but just, a, just typical. And so they said, take him out and run him around the racetrack and see what he's got. So I took him and his wife out to dinner, and that was very nice. But my job was to, was to probe him to find out if he was going to fit in or not. And obviously he wants to impress me. And I've got to be honest with you, I'm not an easy guy to impress. Now, there are certain things that I look for in people, and if I don't see them, I'm unimpressed. I mean, that's just the way I am. You say, well, I'm unimpressed with you. I understand. I'm, I'm impressed with myself sometimes, but anyway. <laughs> but I am dressing better, am I not? See there? Anyway. <clears throat> I get under conviction by my own preaching. You see how that thing works for me? Well, anyway. Bottom line is this. We went out to lunch. And I'm asking him nice questions, you know. I'm just kind of working into it. And I already believe that when you sing, when you sing, that that ought to be based on the Word of God that's in your heart. Uh, you notice we sing the old songs and the old hymns. You know why? Because they were written in a period of time when the Bible was king and everybody, and they got, they drip with Bible doctrine. I mean, you go into most places and close your eyes when they're singing. I've, I've never gotten into the, to the, when you go to a church and before they start the service, the lights go down and smoke comes out under the altar. <laughs> and then the, the choreography of the lights, you know, and then the music comes up and you've got a praise band over here and a prayer band over here and everybody's getting you ready for the, for the preaching of the Word of God. Yeah, I don't know how that, that would get me ready to go out and get drunk. I mean, I don't know how that gets anybody ready for anything. Now, I'm, I'm a stick in the mud. I know that. And I'm, you know, I'm old. I'm a dinosaur. I understand that. <clears throat> but the bottom line is simply that it doesn't change the fact that uh, you can close your eyes in most churches and you could be in a bar. I heard a Christian song one time where the lady was just squalling at the top of her lungs. I love him. 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 Did you ever see the movie Sister Acts? Now, that's a great example. Because those nuns, and they were good. I liked them. I mean, I, thought, I, mean, I liked the movie. I'm sorry. I just, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm not Catholic and I'm not the Pope, but, uh, but I liked the movie. I thought it was cute, thought it was neat. But it was a great example. Now, if you watch down the end when they're performing for the Pope, the song that they sang, that is a worldly song that fit right into what they were doing. I love him, I love him, I love him, and there he goes, I'll follow, I'll follow. Man, that song. I mean, it wasn't, you could sing that and it, it, there's no name in it. And that's the way most Christian songs are. You can close your eyes and I love him, I love him, I love him. Oh, I love him, I love him, I love him. You know? Put your sweet lips a little closer to the phone. Now that, now you know what you got with that, see? I love him, I love him, I love him. 
I do that when I walk into my garage and I say, I love him, I love him, I love him. I got two labs that come over and jump on my lap. They think I'm talking about them. They can't even figure it out. No. I have no idea what that point was that I was going to say to you about this. <laughs> oh, I, I got it. I got it. I got it. You see, the source of your music when you sing or you perform or whatever it is, it ought to be the Bible doctrine that you have in your heart. And you admonish people. I, people get up and sing and they don't even understand where the definitive passage is on the Bible. And back there in, uh, I think it's 1 Samuel 16, uh, back there that defines what music even does for you. Oh, somebody get up and, and sing a song to, and don't even know the definitive verse in the Bible that says what it's supposed to do. That's, that's, that's later to see in Christianity, you see? I mean, I tell you when we started that I try to do things based on the Bible. Now, don't get mad at me because I know what the Bible says about things. I spent 40 years of my life coming through it. That's not my fault that I just want to build something based on the book. I just, I don't know. I don't know where I got the idea. I just thought that was the right thing to do. Now, there's another one in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12. And I'm going to have that song in my head all day. I love him. I love him. I love him. And where he goes to home. It says, wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another. And we beseech you, brethren, to know them that labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. And to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake and be at peace among yourselves. Now, you know what that one says? That one says, take comfort in the fact that uh, somebody who may be over you uh, in a church, somebody, a pastor or a deacon or somebody that you may be working in their ministry, under my ministry, whatever, that you thank God for those people that God puts in your life that help you and keep you accountable and teach you the Bible. They admonish you. The Bible says you should esteem them uh, very highly in love uh, for their work's sake. You know why? Because somebody cares enough to take out of their busy time to share with you, to sit down, to help you get where you want to get. That's why they admonish you. Now, here's another good one. Look at Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians. This is foreign today. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. If any man obey not our word by this epistle... Note that man, and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Okay, you know what you got here? This is a great one. This is so foreign today to most churches. You know what that Bible says? That Bible says if you've got somebody who does something in the church, that becomes an issue, becomes a problem, and that person won't get right and won't deal with it. The Bible says that you do well. I mean, this is totally foreign today. The Bible says that you, you, uh, you, you do well, you do well to have no company with him. But look at the, why, what is the reason for that? Because you don't like him? No, it's a biblical reason that he becomes ashamed of what he did. You know what people do when they do something wrong and they don't want to do what's right? They look through a church to find people who will side with them so they don't have to get right. Now, if you don't know that's true, you better go back. We've got a thing called discipleship lessons. That's what human nature does. Birds of a feather flock together. We talked about it yesterday. I talked to you guys about making a hard decision sometimes that aren't always the popular decision. And the first thing I do when I get out of fellowship and don't want to get right, I look for somebody else's as big a mess as I am. And I take comfort in that. Let me tell you something. 
If you have a, if you have a situation where you've got to deal with it and everybody in that church says, you know what, we love you, but you were wrong in what you did and they don't find any sympathy, you know what that does? It makes them feel ashamed because they don't find any sympathy because the church is supposed to be, oh, I almost forgot this, one mind and one heart and like-minded. Now, the purpose is not to hurt them. Look at it. This is the counseling principle, but it's so foreign in churches today. Because nobody, nobody wants to do it. You, I told you yesterday, you will, most people will not take a stand when it involves their friends. Don't ever let any friendship, relationship, or whatever in this world stand between you and what the Bible says is right to do. I don't know what to tell you, man. My advice to you, if you don't like that, go to Hobby Lobby's right down the road, they sell X-Acto knives. You know what an X-Acto knives is? It's a knife that you can exactly cut out that verse because you don't want to believe it. That's why they call them exacto. If any old man obey not your word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him. Why? Because you don't like him? Because you want to hurt him? No, that he may be ashamed. Yet count him not as an enemy. Don't get on Facebook and tell all the nasty things about him. Don't get on uh, my face, my space, or up here, or whatever it is, and put it on there, or all the stuff that is nasty. The Bible says, don't, it's okay if he wants to count you as, as his enemy. Don't count him as yours. Because the bottom line in every situation in the church is what again? Restoration. And receive them. But sometimes you have to make the hard choice. And we just can't make it today. I mean, that's all there is to it. Just can't do it. We don't see the value in breaking off a relationship with people who do wrong. So God can, Holy Spirit of God can use that to convict them. Because when they find comfort in somebody else, they ain't going to do what's right. Who would? I mean, if you have your kids and you deal with your kids, and, and your kid does something wrong, and you as the dad, uh, or you're the dad or the mother, you take that kid and you yell at that kid and deal with that kid and, and hold that kid accountable, and that kid starts to cry and whine all over the place, and you say, that's the way it is, we're not going to have it, and then as soon as you walk out of the room, he runs over to the mother, and the mother says, oh, that's okay. That's okay. Your daddy don't understand. He's such a mean daddy, isn't he? Is that going to work for you? I'm looking for a yes or no. Is that going to work for you? Thank you very much. It's called English language. You ever notice how unchristian Christians are in their Christianity sometimes? Now look at verse 16. Ah, this is the killer here. That I should be the minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. Ministering the gospel of God that the offering up of the Gentiles might be acceptable, being sanctified by the Holy Ghost. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I, I don't know. This is as good a place to stop as I know. And I, I don't really care if you heard anything else I said today, but boy, you better leave with this one on your heart. Because this is a great concept to close on. And boy, just like everything else we've looked at today, what a foreign verse. He says, look at it again, that the offering up of the Gentiles might be acceptable being sanctified by the Holy Ghost. You see what that thing is saying? That says that you and me, as the church, as Gentiles, you and me are Christ's offering to God. I remember years ago, and I was just right back with the Lord, we had a missionary from Africa that came to our church back in Ohio. 
And he told the story that he worked in a very poor thing and they didn't have a lot of money. And when he passed their offering, they got chickens, ducks, and th- things and corn and all of that. And there was actually, he wanted to build a church building. And there were actually people in that church that loved God and the Word of God so much that they were putting in their wedding rings because they, want, they thought that much of having a house for God because they didn't have one. And he said there was a little girl that came to church every week. She was about 12 or 15 years old, just a young gal. And she didn't have anything. She already didn't have any clothes. She lived in a family that lived in a little squalor hut down the road, and she never missed church, never missed the time that was there. And she sat over there and she cried because when they took up the offering, she didn't have anything to give. And he said they laid down what they did back then. We don't do it here. Some churches do do this. They bring it up, and when they pick up the offerings, they lay the offerings right on the floor in front of the pulpit. You know that? Because that's their symbolism of giving it to God. And he said, you know what that little girl did? He said, you know what that little girl did? She walked up, and she stepped in that offering plate, and she stood in that offering plate. She looked up at me as the missionary, and she says, Pastor Missionary, I don't have anything to give, so I'm going to give myself. And she stepped in that offering plate. Now, you know what that little girl understood? She should understood something that we don't understand. You see, we're supposed to be Christ's sacrifice to God offered up on the altar of ministry. This is why the Bible says in Romans 8, 36, that Paul says, For my sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as what? Sheep for the slaughter. Sacrificial lambs. Where Romans 6, 3 talks about we're baptized into Jesus' death. Even that pictures his death, burial, and resurrection. What a concept. On the cross, God offered up his body for you and for me. Listen to me. On that cross, God offered up his body for you and for me. Now Christ offers up to God his body. You and me. The body of Christ. To God the Father for him. Romans chapter 12. We read it when we come through that great chapter. I beseech you therefore brethren. By the mercies of God. That you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Holy. Acceptable unto God. Which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world. But be you transformed by the renewing of your mind. That you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You and I are to be God's living sacrifice. He says there that if I should be the minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering up of the Gentiles might be acceptable. You know what he did? When God took his son, he offered him up on the cross. When he came out of that tomb and went back to heaven and started the church, you know what Jesus Christ did? He offered up his body, the church, to God. And some of us think that's an unreasonable request based on what God has done for us. Ever notice how unchristian Christians are in their Christianity? Christ-like. Being like Christ. Following the principles of the Word of God in everything that you do. Romans chapter 14 and Romans chapter 15. Two of the greatest chapters you'll ever get into in your life on how we are to deal with each other as the body of Christ and what God expects of us. Next week we'll finish up the last two. And we'll move into chapter 16. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We do love you. And we thank you, Father, for everything that you've done for us and you've given us. And Lord, we thank you for for these two chapters from my own personal life. It's just been incredible. We become so unchristian in our Christianity. We feign. We feign Christ-like. 
But unfortunately, Christ-like at the end of the day is still being like Christ in our attitude, in our actions, in everything that we do. And Father, we thank you today for this church. I thank you for the men and women. I thank you for yesterday. I thank you for the men that I really believe we began to take this ministry apart piece by piece, bolt by bolt, and show them the cause and the effect of everything of what happens in this ministry. And we talked about the hard decisions that have to be made, that how the ministry is like an iceberg, that only 1% is above the surface, but underneath of it is a massive thing that most people never see. And for these men and women to learn ministry and to handle this church, they need to understand that. They need to be made aware. They need to be admonished of what lies out there and how they deal with it. Pray for the ladies next week that we also can bring those through, show them, and give them, and that the ladies of this church, as they always have, will stand up and and be responsive to the principles of the Word of God. Now we bless Bev and Diana's family this week. May us prayers be with them. May we pray that in everything that goes on tonight and tomorrow and Tuesday be for your honor and glory. We thank you for the fact that we had a chance to talk with Margaret and know for sure that she's with the Lord. We love you. We thank you for all that you do. Thank you for the, the, the sweet spirit of our ladies that yesterday when we came down here, uh, Lord, that those uh, cu- couple of ladies fixed up everything and put on the board Happy Father's Day and had uh, George juice and all the food and everything that they did for the fathers of this church. Lord, that is the kind of attitude of heart that, that I'm talking about that people would go the extra mile to be there to help and do the right thing. Thank you, Father. We pray, Father, that the rest of this day you'll bless the mission and then throughout the week and all the things that need to be done. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for his sake we ask it. Amen. Now, please take time on your way out to sign up. Get those tickets out of the way as quickly as possible. We've got to figure that all up tomorrow. Please do that. Take time to sign up for Anniversary Sunday. If you're going to be baptized or what you're going to bring, God bless you. You're dismissed.